Let's pray together. And Lord, it is your name that we gather to celebrate tonight. Thank you that I am privileged with so many Christians around the world to do this with people that I can call family, brothers and sisters in Christ, with bonds, Lord, that are beyond blood because they are forged in the blood and through the life of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. You know how anxious my heart and my mind are at a time like this, so I pray that you'd give me quiet and peace in mind so that I can explain your story and help, help people see the greatness of your character because you deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, folks, how's your year going? It's a somewhat mixed reaction. Mine too. I really only had one goal for 2020. I wanted to lose 20 pounds, and the good news is I only have 25 to go. <laughs> Pretty proud of that accomplishment, actually, that I'm only five pounds behind the initial goal. This has been a, a, a difficult time for all of us, and maybe you've noticed that contentment has been harder to find in 2020 than perhaps in any other year of your life. It's hard to speak in generalities about the pandemic because I know some people, through God's grace, have received some special kinds of blessings. And for them, with everything else that's going on, they have much more to be grateful for and much more to celebrate. For others, it's just been one unrelenting sorrow and loss. That's why beginning on Sunday and for the next three Sundays, I'd like to talk to you about the biblical virtue and the biblical grace of contentment. You see, the humbling thing about 2020, and I, I don't believe there's any institution or any expert in the world who hasn't felt it, the humbling part of 2020 has been that we cannot shape the world to our liking. We have struggled mightily to change our circumstances, and for the most part, we've failed. Experts, science, technology, law, social unity, everything that we came to believe that we trusted, particularly ourselves, could shape circumstance and change our life to a way that we would find enjoyable and agreeable. For the most part, that has been a lost mission in 2020. That's why the Bible teaches contentment. The Bible specifically says that contentment is a gift that God can give you, that if you're a Christian, it's already possible for you, that you need to cultivate. So I'm going to take you to three sections of Scripture. We'll be in Philippians. Later, we'll be in Psalm 73. After that, we'll be in Paul's first letter to Timothy to learn how to identify and fight for contentment. I hope you'll join me. We'll be right here in the tent on Sunday at 9 and 1030. But now, of course, it's time to talk about the birth of Jesus. The Bible is a book filled with all kinds of truth. Really, the Bible is not, in properly speaking, is not so much a book as a library. Sixty-six books, three languages written across 1,400 years by more than three dozen authors, but telling a single cohesive story. Because it's a library, it has all kinds of different things in it, including wisdom. There's probably not another person on earth that has taught me quite as much about following Jesus and what grace under pressure looks like as my wife. 
And one of the things that she taught me, which she learned from her father, was to read the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month. So today, if I were to follow that advice, I would read Proverbs. Am I explaining this well? What chapter of Proverbs would I read tonight? 24. Much sharper than the second service. I really began to doubt myself in the second service. They did not seem to understand what I was trying to convey. That's good advice. That's actually changed my life because the Bible in the book of Proverbs in particular has wisdom. In other words, it has advice. It speaks about laziness and it speaks about work and it speaks about marriage and friendship. It talks about how to be a servant. In other words, how to be an employee. It also talks about how to be a boss and how to relate to bosses. It is filled with good advice. But I'm thankful that the Bible is primarily not a book of advice, though it has it. The Bible primarily is God's word to us, God's overarching story that begins humanity and carries us forward in the book of Revelation until God consummates human history. And the book is not advice, but good news. And it is far better to receive good news than to receive good advice. I had a taste of that before the second service. I was wandering the parking lot saying hi to people, and I ran into a family and their children that go way back with my kids, and because of the pandemic, we haven't seen each other in quite a while. So we took about five minutes to catch up, and all we told each other, because we care about one another, because we pray for each other and root for each other, all we told each other were stories of good news. I bet if we would have changed the subject, every single person that spoke to me would have also told me about sorrow and loss and difficulty because we're all struggling with something. But with this family and their children, it was all good news. It was a new job. It was a promotion at an old job. It was a marriage. It was a new girlfriend. Good news, good news, good news. That's what people who love each other love to share with one another. So tonight I have good news for you. And the good news begins tonight in Isaiah. In that vast library that is the Bible, the book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy. It was actually written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And Isaiah the prophet spoke to the people of his time, told them God's will, and told them of God's future for them, but it looked far beyond them as well. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah, beginning in the present day, telescoped 700 years into the future and spoke of Jesus and made a promise, made a prophetic promise, and not only here in the book of Isaiah and not only here in the Bible, made a promise centuries before the arrival of Christ that he would arrive and what kind of person he would be. And it's vitally important to understand that the story, the character, the name, the birthplace, even the betrayal price, the nature of death, and the circumstances of the burial of Jesus, even down to that granular detail, it's all in the Bible hundreds of years before he appears. Because good news is actually only good news if it's real. Fiction can be entertaining. Fiction can be diverting. But it can't ever truly be good news because it doesn't exist in the real world. Captain America and Iron Man aren't really coming to help us. They can entertain us. 
Those franchises of movie making can make hundreds of millions of dollars, but all they are is escapism because the heroes they portray don't actually exist. The hero of Scripture, Jesus, actually did exist. And God called His shot and delineated the life, the character, and the name of His Son centuries before His birth in verses like this. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon His shoulder. God is announcing that He won't send another prophet He won't send another king. He won't send another wise man as he has sent so many before. This time he is going to send his own son. That his son, whose whose names and titles I'm going to read next, is going to be in an entirely different class from all who have come before him. And he is going to come in the form of a child. He is going to come as a human son who somehow is also the son of God. And then it says the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is a very familiar verse for many Christians, but I wonder if that phrase has ever arrested your attention. It really grabbed mine in a way that it never had before. Because probably more than any other year of our lives, we've had to pay attention to government. Have you noticed? What are the restrictions today? What are we doing today? What is open? What is closed? Where are our children going to be? Are they going to school? Are they not going to school? What will the conditions be of their school? Where can I go and when can I go? Government. Local, state, federal, global authorities, authorities at work telling us, what we must know, what we must do, how our lives must change. Let's be honest here, there's no criticism here. I'm just asking, have you been pleased with everything all of the competing and conflicting authorities have done to you so far this year? Have you been a little frustrated? Have you been a little scared? Listen to the prophet Isaiah looking forward past the birth of Jesus, saying that someday a day will come when the government shall be upon his shoulder. That'll be a good day. Because though a king, he will shepherd us. The good shepherd will care for us as if he loves us because he actually does. All of this is in the Bible. All of this is prophesying and announcing good news. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I won't take time in this somewhat cold environment to go into each one of these titles, but they're all important. You might benefit a lot from going home later and pondering the names and the titles of Jesus here. When he gives counsel, he is found to be wonderful. He always knows what to do, and his heart is always in the right place. Because he's the Son of God, he is not merely a human being. He is the mighty God who became a human being. He's the everlasting Father in the sense that he is the one who is going to welcome you into the family of God, into God's forever family, into a family that death and loss and illness cannot touch. And Isaiah says he's the Prince of Peace. He will rule for peace and he will give peace. He does that for individuals the moment we trust him and it never stops. Our experience of peace with Jesus fluctuates because we're frail and because we're broken, but he himself never changes. That's the promise, that's the prophecy in the book of Isaiah. 
Now I want a telescope ahead some 750, 800 years forward and help you see the reflection that a man made about the birth of Jesus who lived during Jesus' own lifetime. His name was Saul of Tarsus, much better known in the Bible as Paul. Paul was a religious man. If we had to describe him in modern language, he would have been an ultra-Orthodox practicing Jew. He was of the sect known in the first century as the Pharisees. The most zealous, the most law-keeping, the most expert, the most devoted to the law of God on which of top they on, on which they stacked on top their own traditions. Because of his religious zealotry, Paul found Jesus to be an utter fraud. He thought he was an imposter. He thought it was a destroyer of the message of the one true God of Israel. But Paul, as you probably know, became not only Jesus' most ardent disciple, but his most committed preacher. This ultra-Orthodox Jew started behaving in many instances like a Gentile. He went into the far reaches of the Roman Empire to preach the message of Jesus because he met Jesus back from the dead just as the scriptures had prophesied. And the moment Paul knew that Jesus was real, everything changed for him. The world changed too. So long after the promise that Isaiah made, Paul, within the lifetime of Jesus and within the lifetime of the people who knew Jesus, explained his birth this way. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son. That first phrase is important. Paul is writing to people in his own day in a Roman province in modern-day Turkey. And he now recognizes upon reflection and being guided by God to write this for us, that God had a set time, that God was orchestrating human events for the specific arrival of his son in what to us is the ancient world. What was set about the time when Jesus was born? What needed to happen so that that time would fully come? Well, Paul knows. I'll just tell you briefly. The Greek empire had risen and given the world a common language. After them came the Romans, who pacified the world, established the famous Pax Romana, and provided roads that you can still travel today. They had an extraordinary breakthrough to keep their empire together. They had a world-changing idea, which was this, religious freedom. You could largely believe anything you wanted. You can believe in no gods, one god, or many gods, so long as it didn't disturb the peace of the Roman Empire. You could believe and do as you pleased. And in that world, with a common language and with political stability and militarily guaranteed religious freedom between the time of the Old Testament and the time of the New Testament, the Jews, scattered through persecution, lacking a temple, had come up with an institution that remains to this day called the synagogue. Absent one central place for worship, they established many small places for gathering and teaching. And for the first time in history, their Bible that contained things like the promise of Isaiah was written in the one common language of the world. God was orchestrating all this so that the message of his son, God, 
having been able sovereignly to choose when to present his son to the world, chose the time of some 2,000 years ago so that in that ancient world, the message of a single man could spread rapidly. Into that world at that time, God sent his son, and Paul says he was born of a woman. This is what we've been focusing on for the last two weeks here in church. I've been trying to explain to people the depth, the reality, and most of all, the importance of the actual true humanity of Jesus. The astonishing story of Christmas is that Jesus is mighty God. He is creator, but at a specific time in history, a time God chose, when time, the time had fully come, God, the Son, became a human being. And he was born of a woman the same way every other human baby has ever been born. With fear and pain and blood and water and ultimately born healthy and alive into the world with great joy. You probably have a nativity scene, many of you at home. I don't want to ruin your Christmas. There are probably some things in your nativity scene that are not quite historically accurate. But this much is true. The Son of God became a human being and rested in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths carefully by his mother to shield him from the cold, to keep him comforted as we wrap babies in our modern hospitals to this very day because the Son of God was sent by God, but he was born of a woman, and because he was a human being, he was born under the law. In other words, Jesus, God the Son, related to God the Father as a human being. He grew up in true, actual humanity. He faced temptations as every human being ever born ever does. And unlike you and me, facing God's holy, righteous law that your conscience tells you forever exists because there's a right way and a wrong way. And we get pretty good at rationalization, but almost every human being in the world knows when they're doing right and knows when they're doing wrong. The Bible explains that carefully and in detail as well. Jesus, unlike me, was born under the law, but he kept it. The Gospel of Luke even says when Jesus was 12 years old, he went home with his parents and there he submitted to them. He obeyed them. Almost all the world has some form and certainly has moral agreement with almost all of what the Bible calls the Ten Commandments. How to relate to God and how to relate to human beings. The, the parts that relate to the moral law of God are found in almost every human culture. Why is that? Because the law of God is written on our hearts. And every single person under this tent and every single person in every home in every world knows the law of God, whether they've read it in the Bible or not, they know the difference between right and wrong. Your conscience guides you daily, and the trouble is you break that law. You violate your conscience. You knowingly look at right and wrong, and all too often, just like me, you choose what's selfish, you choose what's convenient, you choose what feels good at the moment. All of that alienates you from God. That disobedience creates a chasm that is almost impossible to describe between the absolute holiness and justice and righteousness of God and the sinfulness and the frailty of human beings. That's why Paul said, Jesus came, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, to rescue us, 
to buy us back from our disobedience is what that literally means so that we, he says, might receive adoption to sonship. Not mere forgiveness, but actually welcome into the family of God to call God our everlasting Father, to be loved by God the Father as we will never truly be perfectly loved here on earth. All of that was what Jesus came to do. That's why he was born. That's what we're celebrating. And in our remembrance of Jesus' birth, I'll let him have the last word. You've heard from Isaiah 700 years before his birth. You've heard from Paul who lived at the same time that Jesus did, looking back just a few short years, back at the life of the Jesus he knew. But listen to Jesus explain his appearance in the world. This is John 3.16, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. A verse that half a generation ago was made famous because there was a man here in Southern California who put on a rainbow-colored wig and went to sports events all over the world, especially NFL football, lined up right below the goalpost and in a great seat, amazing the seats that guy got, held up a homemade sign that said, John 3.16. If you look into his story, and please don't, he's an interesting character and it didn't end particularly well for him. But in his eccentricity, he identified one verse that every human being should know because in a sentence it explains the birth of Jesus. The context is this, a religious man, much like Paul, has come to Jesus at night. Likely out of embarrassment, likely out of the religious pressure, he doesn't want to face his contemporaries, but he hears Jesus teach and he sees Jesus do miracles that are outside of the reach of any mere teacher. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know that God is with you because no one can do these works, these miracles that you do unless God is with him. He starts Jesus off with a compliment. Jesus cryptically immediately shows this man that Flattery will get him nowhere that he doesn't really understand for all his learning. He doesn't really understand who Jesus is or how to be pleasing to God. Jesus tells this man, you must be born again. He does not begin to fathom it. Not understanding that Jesus is speaking spiritually, he argues with Jesus and says, I'm a grown man. How could I possibly be born again? And Jesus, by way of explanation, presents John 3.16. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here's the story of Isaiah and the analysis of Paul one from the past, one from the present, the contemporary day of Jesus, tied together by the explanation of Jesus of why he came into the world. Jesus, the Son of God, appeared in the world because God loved the world. He, gave, he loved the humanity he made. He loved the humanity he saw lost in sin. So God gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but instead have eternal life. Now, last Sunday I gave what is perhaps one of the darkest and grittiest sermons around Christmas time that anybody could ever share. We looked into the genealogy of Jesus and we discovered the darkness and the sin and the lostness and even the depravity of the people who came before him because it was for such people that he died. 
And I promised last Sunday that this Sunday, this evening would not be dark, and it won't. But really understand this verse, you have to focus on the one negative word that's in it. Because God speaks of His love, God speaks of His Son, God speaks of trusting and believing His Son, God speaks most of all in this verse of eternal life, but there's one negative word in it. Do you see it? What is it? Perish. An elegant word, an old-fashioned word that means to die. And maybe in 2020, all these months into the pandemic, maybe now we've been humbled enough to consider the reality of death. Because that's what's created all the pressure. The reactions have been extraordinary. It's gone from utter denial to utter fear and panic. From people who do believe there is no danger at all to people who believe apparently if they ever leave their homes, they'll die shortly thereafter. Given that a lot of thought, and I've talked to a lot of people at the length of this pandemic, I believe as different as those reactions are, they all have a common source. Those are two different ways of dealing with one problem, the reality of death. One chooses to deny its possibility. The other is terrified of its reality. But everyone in this pandemic has felt the pressure, whether for themselves or for their loved one, has felt the presence and the ever-present reality, the specter, if you will, of death. And it is for death that Jesus entered the world. Jesus, knowing the full reality of human suffering and sin and knowing that sin would bring death, Jesus entered the world because God loved the lost and dying world so that he gave his son with this offer. If anyone will simply trust God's son, trust the one who became their substitute by his perfect obedience, that person trusting Jesus will have from Jesus as a promise, as a personal gift from Jesus will have eternal life. That's the good news. You see, many people have misunderstood Christianity as one of many competing religions with its own set of values and moral rules, and it's nothing like that at all. There are rules. Jesus did give commandments, but none of them are intended for earning. They're all intended for living the life that he alone can gift us through his death and his resurrection. And this verse contains all that because he says the way to have eternal life is simply to believe Jesus. In other words, the gift and the good news that I'm announcing to you is that Jesus announces not a life to imitate, not that alone, that too. Not a life of moral example. Yes, that too, but that's secondary. What Jesus is actually announcing is an exchange life. He wants to trade his life and his death for yours so that you, in place of his death, you can have eternal life. Here's an example that might help you understand the depth of his love. You may remember this story because it shook the nation. It was just before Easter, I believe, in 2017. Several people boarded a small plane operated by United Airlines, and as the airlines often do, they had oversold the flight. The airlines said, we need four of you to leave because we have personnel that need to deadhead. They need to be on the plane, so even though you paid for a ticket, four of you must get off. 
Well, nobody likes that. The airline did its usual thing, trying to persuade people with money to give up their seats. Finally, three people were chosen to leave, and three people did, but they needed four. They needed one more, and they, select, they selected Dr. David Dow and told him he had to get off. He said he wouldn't. He stood his ground. He remained in his seat and refused to leave. After that, it gets really controversial, and people will argue about this probably for the rest of time. But when his refusal was so steadfast, the airline got law enforcement involved. And armed officers entered that plane and told him he had to leave. He still refused. After that, it's a controversy. But what happened shortly after that is that Dr. David Dow was battered and bloodied and carried off the plane since he wouldn't leave on his own. I watched the video. I saw many seated passengers abusing the police officers, screaming at them, lamenting the injustice, protesting, telling them that they had no right what, to do what they were doing to their fellow passenger. What I never heard was a single person saying, stop. He doesn't have to leave. Take my seat. He's fine. Let him fly. Let him go to where he needs to go. I'll get off. He can have my seat. Not one person offered to be his substitute. But Jesus offered to be yours and not over something that is ultimately trivial like getting to your destination on time on an aircraft. Jesus offered to trade his life for yours so that you could have eternal life. That's the offer. That's the gift. That's what we're singing about. That's what we're celebrating tonight. And again, because of these lights and because of this darkness, I can't even see you. I don't even actually know how many people are here, but I have a personal request and a personal offer. It's really not mine. I'm merely the messenger here on behalf of Jesus, speaking to you in his name, reminding you of his life and his story to tell you that if you don't have the absolute assurance of your relationship with God, if you still know that your conscience is wounded, you're still separated from God by your sin, I'm inviting you in the name of Jesus to make this your night to trust him. To give up on yourself, give up on your sin, admit, confess to Jesus, agree with Jesus that you're a sinner in need of salvation, and trust him to give you what he promised he would, to give you eternal life. That's what we're celebrating. That's why we came here. You may have come here, maybe, maybe just to keep a friend happy, just to keep peace in the family. God who can orchestrate empires, who can orchestrate the whole world's events, he loves you enough to orchestrate you sitting here to hear this witness of his son. Again, I'm not the guy that matters. I'm just the one telling you the story of the man, the Savior who matters. But my invitation to you for certain is that you would turn from yourself, turn away from your sin, and trust Jesus to give you what he promised. Would you read this verse with me? Here's what Jesus offered the world. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Can I just ask you, friend, to trust in Jesus right now? 
please mark my words, I'm not asking you to be religious. I'm not asking you to join this church. I'd love for you to keep coming back, but that's literally unimportant until you trust Jesus. That won't matter at all unless you trust Jesus. My invitation to you is to believe the good news you've been given. I'm just a messenger. I'm a man announcing to you the good news that Jesus saw you on the verge of death. Jesus saw you far from God in sin, and Jesus came for you to offer you eternal life. If you know that's true, if God is dealing with you and speaking to you in your heart, telling you, this guy's telling you the truth, you need to trust me. I'm inviting you to do just that tonight, right here, right now. To turn to Jesus in your own heart and mind and confess to him sincerely your need of a Savior. Father, I pray you would give grace to anybody who needs to know you, anybody who hasn't trusted you, that they would pray to you simply and say to you that they have sinned, that they recognize it, that their conscience tells them so. They agree with you that they are in need of your salvation and forgiveness. I pray that they would ask you for it. And I thank you, God, when they trust you, when they turn to you, you will certainly give it to them. You, Jesus, told us if anyone will come to you, you will by no means turn them aside. You will not cast them out. So in the quietness of this moment, I pray that anybody who needs you would turn to you now. And Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Many of us here already have you. We have you, the one who matters most, the one who makes life make sense, the one who me, makes this life matter beyond this earth, who gives eternal life. Thank you. As we sing a final song, Lord, of gratitude, lift our hearts to you, Lord. Join our hearts and our minds with you in love so that you may be loved and celebrated and thanked as you deserve. In Christ's name I pray, amen.